What's up, everybody? This is your host, Scott Melker, and you're listening to the Wolf of All Streets podcast. Every week, I'm talking to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports, politics, and basically anyone else with an interesting story to tell. So sit down, strap in, and get ready, because we're going deep. Let's go. Today's episode is brought to you by Choice by Kingdom Trust and Voyager. We'll learn more about them later on in the episode. This podcast is powered by Blockworks Group, the only events and podcast production company I trust. For access to the premier digital asset conferences and in-depth podcast content, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Today's guest is tackling one of the most complicated yet widespread problems that exists between major retailers in the crypto space. Sorvis Renwakun is the CEO and co-founder of Band Protocol, and his work is advancing the way data is understood, verified, stored, and received. Sorvis, man, thank you so much for being here today. I know it's uh, late your time and early my time, so <laughs> I appreciate no you worry. staying up. <laughs> no worries. Thanks for having me here. Really a pleasure. So uh, how rare is it to have a blockchain pro- project in Bangkok? Um, actually, this is a funny story. I think, you know, people think it's rare, but a lot of the, you know, people don't realize, for example, Omiseko is based in Thailand. Bangkok. Um, We have Loom Network also based in Bangkok, Um, you know, um, as well as some of the core developers in the big major blockchain, uh, you know, in Bangkok, actually. So there's actually quite a few um, compared to, you know, the size of our country. That's interesting. It's not the first place that I think a lot of people think of um, for for the space. Um, So you actually went to school in the United States, right? You graduated from Stanford. Is that correct? So uh, That's right. you, you, you came here and then you obviously you went back. What was your path like after graduating Stanford? What did you do and how did it lead you to, to where you are now? Right, right. Sure. Um, so I'm actually an engineer by training, even though I'm the CEO. So I did computer science at um, Stanford as an undergrad, right? Um, that's sort of when I actually came across um, cryptographies, came across Bitcoin uh, back in 2013. And that's why I became quite passionate about it, um, started investing um, on the side. Um, and after I graduated, I sort of came back to Bangkok um, because I always know I want to start something, right? I want to contribute something meaningful to this world. Um, and while you know, investing, I guess I, I, I went into management consultant at Boston Consulting Group, which is like a top three management consultant, um, you know, for two years while you know, still investing in a lot of these cryptos, um, crypto businesses, as well as starting my own mobile games. Um, that relate to crypto as well. So people play game, my games and then they get free Bitcoin and Ethereum. Right? Um, that was back in the day, 2015. Nobody really does, uh, did that. Um, so we grew that to almost 800,000 users before we um, sort of you know, sold that business and then wow. started Band Protocol in 2017. That's awesome. So, but you were a trader for a while too, not just an investor, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, actually I'm, I'm more of a hodler. So I, I, do, I do hold a lot of my tokens for, for quite a long, long time. Like, and, I, and when I say long, I mean years. Yeah, well, I think that's the uh, definition, you know, of a real investor. It's funny. Uh, in any other in any other market or community, when someone thinks of investment, they think of decades or a lifetime <laughs> or, right. of holding things. And then you mention uh, investing to a, a a crypto person, and they're like, "Yeah, man, I held it for like six months. <laughs> you know, the, the entire <laughs> yeah. space has only existed for just over over ten years." So it, it is a uh, pretty funny. So. That led you to Band Protocol. What is the major problem that you're solving with Band, and and how are you solving it? Right. Um, so I think I think we always um, come to this right. What, what we call the Oracle problems. Um, this Oracle problem is essentially the fact that smart contract and blockchain applications 
have no easy access to real-world information, real-world data and API, right? Um, think of it as, you know, this piece of code that live within its own ecosystem, right? Uh, as simple as, you know, things on Ethereum cannot access information on Bitcoin blockchain, right? right. Um, let, let alone, you know, the, the rest of the information in the real world. Um, and so they need someone to actually fetch that data um, into the blockchain, right? And that is essentially the job of Oracle, right? Um, that's what Ben tried to solve essentially try to figure out what is the best way, the most decentralized way possible to bring the data, the data outside of blockchain into smart contracts so that they can consume it in the most reliable and secure manner, right? And it's a really important problem because um, if you think about the smart contract, they are deterministic, right? In, fact, in the sense that it, whatever input you feed, it will always give the, the same output, right? So you need to be able to keep reliable input, for example, price of Ethereum, um, so that a lot of this lending protocol, a lot of this stable coin, a lot of these DeFi projects will be able to run in the most decentralized manner possible. Right, so that makes sense. So I'm assuming that to some degree that touches on the widespread issue way beyond the crypto community that we see with fake news and, and false data. Is that really what you're getting at here? Is that you're... you're you're verifying that news is actually real. Right, right. So I think when, when we talk about data, right, there are data that is subjective, um, as you mentioned, in terms of, you know, if the news is real or not, right, it's actually more, much more subjective than most people realize. Right. Um, and then there are objective data, such as, let's say, Bitcoin price, right? I think you and me and anyone around the world can generally agree uh, what is the current price of Bitcoin, for example, right? Um, and so with that, you know, Originally, when we started Band Protocol, we were focusing more on the subjective data, as you mentioned, fake news and all of that. Then after we talked to a lot of our partners, a lot of our clients, uh, you know, we we're going to use our solutions, we quickly realized that the, the, more, the better product market fit is actually on the more objective data, which is the Oracle problem, right? How do we bring this objective data into blockchain in a more decentralized manner? And that's why we sort of, I guess, I wouldn't call it pivot, but refocus in terms of what we do to focus more, much more on the Oracle problems um, since you know, last year. Um, can you like give a very basic rundown of what an Oracle is, sort of the uh, Oracle for dummies? Because I think we have a very diverse uh, listeners and uh, right. some of them may be in it for the tech, some may just be traders, some may be superficially interested in the lifestyle of, of people mm. who are in, in the space. So can you define Oracle and tell us what it is? Right. I think the best way is to give example, right? Um, so one example is, you know, with smart contract, right? You can write a piece of code between you know, two people. For example, betting applications, right? For example, you and me want to bet if Chelsea going to win a Premier League tomorrow or win a, you know, a, a match tomorrow, right? Um, now, it's going to be hard usually, if they're not playing. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> or with this time. Um, but let's assume they are playing in a regular time, right? Um, you know, you and me cannot trust each other because if you, you know, if you lose, you may run away from me, right? That's why casino exists. That's why middleman exists. Now, with smart contract and blockchain application, you can actually write a piece of code that say, if Chelsea win, transfer my money, my, uh, the money from me to you, right? Otherwise, transfer money from you to me. That's in a trustless way. I don't have to trust you. You don't have to trust me. And everything is self-enforceable. Sounds pretty cool, right? Yeah, it's um, amazing. The problem, is, <laughs> the problem is, as a piece of code, right, it doesn't know whether Chelsea actually win or lose, right? That's the information that lives in the real world, not inside blockchain. So somebody has to tell that piece of code, somebody has to tell this smart contract that, hey, Chelsea actually win, 
or should I say I should lose, right? That's the job of Oracle, such as Band Protocol and Chainlink to actually pull data from the real world API into smart contract so that they can consume this data and use them within their logic, right? And this apply from, you know, betting application, as I mentioned, it applied to, um, you know, financial application that are people are building that, right? Lending protocol, um, stable coin, because a lot of these will rely on financial data. Uh, what is the current price of Bitcoin? What's the current price of Ethereum? And that's really critical in, in the smart contract. I mean, you look at the, the betting application, right? If Oracle is compromised like us, and we actually lie, false information got in and say, you know, instead of Chelsea win, we say Chelsea lose. Right. The smart contract would, will, will automatically did something wrong, right? And that's a really bad thing to happen, right? So we don't want that to happen. And that's why Oracle is such an important factor in this ecosystem. So that, that makes perfect sense. So it sounds like you have two issues. You need to bring the data in, but you also need to verify that it's true. So obviously there needs to be a reward for proper data and a penalty for improper data. So how does that work exactly? How do you know that Chelsea won? How do you know that you didn't right. scrape the internet and get a false story on the winner of that game? Right, right. So I think there are two things there. Um, one is that when you fetch this data, right, when you ask this data providers on our network to go get the data, you want to build redundancies when it comes to the data source, right? Um, so essentially, if you want, let's say, um, price of, uh, let, uh, let's continue example of, uh, of a sport event, right? If you want data, whether she'll see win or not, you want to build redundancy at a data source. So you say, oh, get data from ESPN, get data from Spotstat get data from, you know, whatever data um, providers that provide those um, stats, right? So you build redundancies. Even if ESPN is down, um, data provider can still go fetch, you know, from the rest of the data sources. So that's number one. Number two is that at the data validators level, essentially people will bring the data. You don't want one person to report that, right? You want multiple people to report the same data in order to build that redundancies and make sure nobody can game the system. And that means, that's why we have in Band Chain, we have hundreds of data validators who perform this job, right? Um, and as a data validators, you need to stake the band token in order to become a validator, right. right? And what that means is similar to other proof of stake blockchain, they have a lot of costs at stake, right? They have millions of dollars um, being at stake at that moment. That means in order to ensure that they don't want to act maliciously. And this is similar to a Bitcoin, Ethereum, right? In a sense that you want the economic incentive of being a good person to be better than being a malicious actor. Um, and that's how we engineer it such that, um, you know, at a protocol level, a lot of our validators have a lot of money and skin in the game to ensure that they act honestly. And they receive additional incentive for, for acting honestly. So it's not even what they're holding. You actually get more, more coins to stake. That's right. That's right. That's right. So actually there are three factors. One is the, the money that they stake, right? So again, they stake band token. If they act maliciously, nobody use band, the band will only go down. Then they right. have, they stand to lose a lot of money. Right. Number two, they stand to lose future revenue, as you mentioned, because they, you know, they get curie fee from people who ask for the data. And then number three, if you look at our band chain, you, you see a lot of uh, enterprise grade level validators. And these people actually stake for multiple blockchain. So if they actually cheat on band chain, people will lose trust and they will not stake for them on other blockchain as well. And these other blockchain are traditionally even bigger than us, like Cosmos, like you know, right. um, other bigger blockchains. So that gives us a lot of uh, insurance in terms of why they would not cheat. And there's a lot of cost for them to do that. So how will retail companies use band? 
what what is the use case for for a, a large brand? Right, retail companies. You mean like a traditional companies? Yeah, I guess like a traditional retail company. Right. So I guess you look at this two ways. Um, the the first part is people who are traditional market data providers. So people who actually provide data already, right? This include, for example, Bloomberg, right? Or right. NASDAQ, or, uh, companies that have financial data, um, or ESPN, for example. What they can do is they um, basically, um, they can use BAM to commercialize their data, right? They can sell their data traditionally to like uh, traditional companies um, into, um, I guess, um, blockchain application. So the more blockchain application used, they get more revenue from that, right? Just like how they sell B2B already. Um, so that's the first part. Um, the second part is around more of a people who use the data, right? Um, this include, for example, companies like um, people that do in the, in the supply chain, for example, they want to do conditional payment, right? Conditional payment say, if I receive an invoice from company A, process payment from me to that company, right? right. Um, in order to automate that in a smart contract, the smart contract need to know whether the, the receipt actually got received, right? And again, Oracle will be used to connect those data in the real world into a smart contract so that it's able to compute on that logic. Okay, so how will a crypto project use BAND? If it, not, not, not the ESPNs and Bluebirds and NASDAQs of the right. world, but the exchanges and the DeFi, you know, and, and all of these other companies in the crypto space. Right, so I think when you look at DeFi, I think that's a really clear, easiest example, right? You look at DeFi like stablecoin, like MakerDAO, for example. Maker rely on the fact that people deposit Ethereum as a collateral, right, or other asset now, and then they mint new, you know, stable coin, right? Right. And, and, and the reason why they are always collateralized is the fact that whatever they loan out, lend out the money, right, has to be less than the money that is being put as a collateral, right? So meaning the system is always over collateralized. That means the smart contract need to always knows what is the price of Ethereum right now, right? What's the right. price of the collateral? Um, and that's the job of Oracle to tell them, right? Ethereum is $200 now, it's $300 now. Um, and that's why it's really critical. Oracle is not compromised. If you look at incident like B0X, for example, that was one of the, one of the attack relate directly to, you know, Oracle problem because right. B0X rely on on-chain price, which is the price of, you know, on one particular exchange, just one exchange, right? No redundancies, one exchange. Right. So that allows somebody attacker to manipulate the price on that particular exchange, which is a decentralized exchange, to game the system, to think that they're a fool, basically the system to think, oh, this stable coin is worth $2. So then it lend out money more than the ape actually has, right? Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, I watched a past interview actually, and you spoke, it was really interesting about how, I guess, specifically in 2017, the crypto community grow, grew, but the quality went down primarily because the people who were joining the community were all speculators. So basically everyone right. was speculating on price. It sort of transitioned from, I guess, the, the tech and the blockchain to strictly, I want to buy this and sell it for, for more. And therefore the community became, I guess, more negative, trollish, and just the, the, the things that happen, <laughs> I guess, when a, when a community expands. So how does uh, band or, or what you're doing improve the quality of the community and sort of bring it back to the, the original intention? Right. So I think, um, you know, communities is always tricky, right? How do we build a non-toxic communities in, in the crypto space? And I think that's really important for us. Um, we always make sure that, you know, um, um, we, we always make sure that our communities are always trying to be non-toxic, doesn't attack other people. Of course, we cannot control them 100%. 
Uh, but yeah. at least that's uh, some some of the we've seen yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I think I think at least we try our best to send that message across that the team um, try to try to convey this culture, right? Um, and and I think over time, I I do under I do hope that you know past the toxic in 2017 when there's a lot of scams, when there are lots of vaporwares. Um, now in 2020, people to start to pay more attention to fundamental. People start to pay much more attention to projects that have adoptions and actually solve real world problems. Um, and that's why we, we start to notice a lot of our community members actually are much more sophisticated, um, understand DeFi, understand adoptions. And I hope that, you know, as we grow over the next few years, we can, we can remain you know, the, the, I guess the DNA of how we start this and, and make sure, you know, we don't get to that point. Do you still experience sort of uh headwinds from the larger community or or i guess even the world in general as a result of the way it was in 2017 the ico craze i mean basically any project that starts in this space is immediately labeled mm-hmm. a scam until proven otherwise i guess that's what i'm right. saying is that i and I, yep. I know you've experienced it i've seen it but like the, the minute you start something in crypto it's not innocent and proven until proven guilty. It's you're a scam <laughs> until you tell me otherwise. Right. But do you ex- still do you still experience that because there were all these scams in the space mm-hmm. before? Right. I think there's always prejudice for that for sure. Right. Um, the, uh, but I think the fact that you know the we went after a lot of the more traditional VCs, um, you know, venture capital and and, and investors really help a lot with uh, with our, with us. Right. Um, I mean, we have Sequoia Capital. Um, you know, one of the biggest you know, traditional VC, and we have Binance as the biggest cryptocurrency exchange to support us. Um, I think that speaks a lot um, about the, the project because these traditional VCs like Sequoia um, conducted, you know, I can say, extensive due diligence on projects. Right? Yeah. Um, so that, that, that did help a lot. Uh, but, uh, but of course, like, as you know, there's a lot of tribalisms in, in, in the industry when people invest in somebody like companies, I think not just in the old cost space. I mean, you have Bitcoin maximalists that talk bad about everyone else. You have Ethereum maximalists that talk bad about every other, you know, um, layer one solutions. And of course you have, you know, Oracle and, and all of this, right? I mean, it's, it's always going to happen. You want to say you want to say Link Marines, but you won't. So I'll say it for you. <laughs> I'm always trying to be careful. Um, I know, of course. But, uh, but you know, you didn't say um, it. Think, you think, didn't say <laughs> it. Right. Yeah, I think I think you know I, I don't like that toxic cities. Um, I don't like the tribalisms. I think you know all of us are trying to innovate. We all of us are trying to contribute positively to this industry, um, and we are still a really really small industry um, by all measurements. So yeah. no, I think the better way to do this is to think positive and, and try to help each other to grow adoption and to bring this mainstream instead of having this all infighting between each other. Right. So you touched on this just now. Obviously, you, you gain a level of credibility when you get legitimate venture capital behind a pro- project. Can you talk more broadly, I guess, about the, the process of you know, going to someone like Sequoia and securing capital from them, but also the effect, I guess, in general on venture capital in the crypto space and how projects develop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think in terms of process, like I said, it's, it's, it's like a traditional investing, right? Even though it's a token use, right? Um, it's still really traditional in the sense that, you know, when they invest in early stage company like us back then, um, they look at the ideas, they look at the problems as the number one, right? Is this problem worth solving? Is this problem worth billions of dollars, right? 
I right. mean, they are a billion dollar fund, so they're not going to look at a million dollars opportunity. Yeah, right? they don't care. Um, so they look at whether this is a big problem um, worth solving. Of course, Oracle, like I said, is one of the big fundamental, you know, missing piece in the in the crypto industry. So that's important. Number one. Um, number two is the team. Right. Again, as an early stage companies, I think Sequoia as well as other investor understand that people will always pivot. Okay. Um, you know, you, you can start with a bad ideas, but with a good team, you can always pivot to something good. Right. Okay? So team is actually really important. And they look at us and they look at, you know, obviously with, with our team, even though we are young, we have been in the crypto space for a long, long time. Okay. Um, as well as, you know, we, 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 like I said, you know, I'm a major investor in a lot of the crypto projects. I understand, um, a lot of this crypto landscape, uh, you know, obviously one solution, the DeFi's and all of that. Um, so I think that was really critical that they, they, they saw that the team is really hardworking, really talented, um, and, and have the abilities to piece of weird and, and sort of pivot whenever we need to. Right. And that's really important. Um, I mean, as I said, crypto is really early. We are experimenting with all this crypto economics. We are experimenting with all this protocol. Um, and, and, you know, with, if you have the right team, you can always pivot and try something that, that works. Right. It's just interesting because in 2016-17, the ICO craze, even in the United States, where clearly it should not have been allowed to happen. But I mean, companies could raise hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars for a problem that maybe required a million or two to, to solve. And then, you know, right. so that's over seemingly. Mm -hmm. So does that mean that venture capital is now necessary to grow projects in this space? Do you really need outside uh, institutional money to make it happen? Yeah, I think, I think there are always um, capital around, um, whether that be from crypto VCs or from traditional VCs. There's always, a, you know, there's a lot of abandoned capital around. Um, the thing is, and I think this touched on the second part of your questions, uh, why we pursue, you know, traditional VCs is that they are much more long-term, much longer term than you know, right. crypto VCs. Right. I think a lot of crypto VCs call themselves VCs, but they are more like hedge fund <laughs> in a sense that yeah. you know, they trade in and out and they are like two or three years at, at maximum, right? Whereas a traditional VC like Sequoia a 10 years fund, right? Or longer. Um, and that means they are here for the long term. Um, they're not going to sell. They're not going to, you know, um, I guess, you know, unlike crypto VCs, they don't have the pressure, uh, the, the pressure from investors to sell and liquidate the fund in a fast manner. So they stay here for the long, for the long term, as well as I think they are really helpful, um, not just in terms of bouncing idea, but they're helpful in terms of, you know, giving support when it comes to operation, legal, marketing and all of this. So, you know, it's, um, I think we are really fortunate. And I think that's, that's something that we have been always grateful about their support. It's interesting because it sounds like, uh, obviously, crypto has its own venture capital. Mm. But their, their structure is not actually the kind of venture capital that most projects that are serious and want to be around for a long time need in the space. Right. You have to go to traditional venture capital. And I never really thought about that. That's really interesting. So you've touched on the fact that you yourself are a big investor in a num number of uh, crypto projects outside of band, obviously. Um, would you mind sharing what your worst and best investments have been thus far? <laughs> right, right. That's a, that's a really tricky question. That's um, why I asked it. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of the best investment, um, actually, we, I did actually have quite a few good investments. Obviously, Ethereum uh, was one of the best. Um, you know, my friends um, started to... Actually, my friends um, were asking me to invest in the Ethereum ICO back then, uh, you know, at 50 uh. cents. 
Uh, I needed um, to be your friend. <laughs> <laughs> I had the wrong yeah. friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I actually missed that, and then I started buying more in the one or two dollars range, and and up to even ten dollars. Um, but you know, back then it was it was actually quite scary. <laughs> a lot of up and downs. Right? Of, of course, um, uh, yeah, ten dollars yeah. to five dollars is uh, the same yeah. as a thousand to five hundred. So yeah, that's right, that's right. So I think I think that was obviously Ethereum was one of the best for sure. Um, you know, I we were me and my friend were one of the biggest invest. We actually one of the the biggest investors. Sorry, not one. We had the biggest investor in engine. Um, oh, wow. engine coin. So, you know, we, we, we actually made substantial um, investment into, into the team. You know, I flew to Singapore to see, you know, the, the CEOs and co-founders on, uh, back then. Um, we are, we were also big investor in Kyber. So the, these are one of the bigger investor you know, in, in there. Uh, so that was, that was good. We were one of the biggest investor in Icon uh, back in the days. So again, uh, make, uh, you know, it, it went up quite, quite high. So yes, those are some of the biggest investments. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Guess, so how about the worst? I guess the worst, of course, there's always the worst. Um, let me think. I think the worst one, um, I'm not going to name the names because obviously, you know, I don't want to, I want to name the bad one. Right. Um, but we were, uh, we were really interested in the, in the ideas of, I guess, automatic payment. So there was this one company that were trying to do, you know, um, a, a scheduled payment ahead of time. Right. In a sense that, as like I said, smart contract is deterministic. So it's really difficult to do, like, for example, recurring payment, right? Pay every single day on that. Huge right? problem. Yep. Right. So there was one company that was trying to solve this. Um, they even partnered with um, mycrypto.com, my wallet, you know, to, to, to bring that solution. So we were really quite bullish as well. Um, but, you know, obviously the investment didn't turn um, out as well um, as other investment. Um, but that's fine. I mean, you know, you miss some, you hit some. And I think that's, that's the general investment. Don't be a part of the 7.1 million Bitcoiners in the United States who have Bitcoin and a retirement account, but don't have Bitcoin in their retirement account. Seriously, you can hold Bitcoin in your retirement account and not just GBTC. How can you do this? Through a self-directed choice IRA by Kingdom Trust. The first thousand users to open a choice IRA will receive $62.50 in free Bitcoin. Visit retirewithchoice.com slash wolf. That's R-E-T-I-R-E-W-I-T-H-C-H-O-I-C-E dot C-O-M slash W-O-L-F. Podcast listeners receive extra points to move up the waitlist and get their choice IRA first. Do it right now. It's time to take control of your financial future and free yourself from the restrictions of classic retirement accounts. Are you sick of paying ridiculous fees to trade crypto? It's time you try Voyager. It's hands down my favorite place to buy and trade crypto, and it's 100% commission-free. Voyager gives you easy access to more than 30 top crypto assets, and you can instantly transfer cash from your bank account so you never miss a trading opportunity. Even better, you can now automatically earn interest on your crypto holdings. Currently, they're offering 5% interest on Bitcoin and 6% on USDC. Yes, you heard that correctly, 6%. And there are no limits or lockups, which means your funds always stay liquid. Find out why so many people are making the switch to Voyager. Visit investvoyager.com or search for Voyager on the iTunes or Google Play store and get $25 in free Bitcoin when you use the promo code SCOTT25. That's investvoyager.com, promo code SCOTT25 for $25 in free Bitcoin and start trading today. So when you were investing, were you doing this independently with a group with your friend or were you actually like a uh, structured VC fund yourself uh, right. and investing in these companies or were you 
you know, buying the ICO <laughs> or going on an exchange right. and buying an entire order book. How did that work? Right. We were actually not a, a structured VC fund. Um, we were more like syndicates of people in Southeast Asia. We were one of the biggest the in Southeast ICO Asia. ICO pool type thing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Back in the days, right. Uh, my my friends sort of organized that and ran it. Um, and so yeah, we would in, we would try to identify high potential project. Actually, in you know, look into the fundamental, um, and and then went in big in terms of you know either ICO as a pre-sale or whatnot, right? We we generally do that. Um, actually, Zero X was one of the best as well. Um, I was quite big on them. Um, so yeah, I, I I was more in charge of looking at the token economics. I was in charge of looking at the areas that we want to invest in. Um, and that's why I became really fascinated. And it was on the side when I was at BCT, right? Right. Um, I was really fascinated with with token economics, with you know a lot of these different solutions that are that are coming to market. Um, and that led me down this rapid hole of, of I guess you know realizing that Oracle problem is is a big problem. Right. That makes sense. Actually, sorry, I missed Ling. Ling is actually one of my best performing. Um, That's funny. Actually, I mean, yeah. would you consider Chainlink to be your main, I guess, competitor or the, someone who's trying to solve almost the same problem? Correct. Right. Um, I, I do think that there again. I, I invested in Ling long time ago since ICOs. Um, you know, I I think Oracle Palmo is big. I am a firm believer of a non-monopoly world. I don't believe in the winner-takes-all, right? I believe that um, a lot of these projects, um, not just Oracle, but Layer 1 Solution, for example, or even digital money, there are always trade-offs, right? In everything, there's always trade-offs. And that means there will be solution that, you know, to, uh, you know make different trade-offs, um, make different decisions, design decisions. Um, and so that's why I was, I'm really bullish and still am really bullish, of course, on Oracle. And that's why we decide ourselves to be obviously different to Shenling. And and we also think that again, I admire Sergey. I think Chainlink team is really good, really solid, really smart team. Um, and and I think, uh, I guess we don't look at them as competitors the way that we. I don't look at Cosmos as a competitor of Chainlink. I'm sorry, uh, competitor of Ethereum. Ethereum, right? yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I believe in people having different design, answering different niche, um, and that's what I believe. So again, the the more solutions, the more diverse, the better for the industry. I would have to imagine also like. At the moment, we're talking about a very small space. Um, so yes, <laughs> I think right. to, to some degree now, you're, people could view it as competitive. But if we reach mainstream adoption, there's going to be more business and more applications for these things than one company could could ever ever uh, surf, service. I, I would imagine. So let's talk That's about right. the idea of mainstream adoption. How? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, people talk about it in terms of. Bitcoin all the time or Ethereum and all this thing, but blockchain in general, how does it get to the point where it's the underlying tech behind everything? It's the internet, it's email, it's cell phones. Nobody's worried about what it's doing. It is just mainstream adopted as the thing that's running, you know, most of the the Mm -hmm. major business uh, in the world. Right. I think, you know, we are still quite a long way into mass adoption. That's for sure. Um, But I, I do think it's inevitable um, in the sense that, I mean, you look at the adoption curve, you look at the infrastructure that are being built um, with major companies, uh, traditional companies in the past few years, it has been amazing, right? Um, you have players like Facebook trying to come in with Libra. You have, you know, the eyes building their own cryptocurrency exchanges. Now, even in Asia, you know, we have one of the largest bank here. Um, trying to enter into crypto space, you know, a lot of these traditional players are coming in, right? You have Robinhood, you have you know, in the US, you have a lot of these traditional players coming in. 
So I think over time, as we, the younger generation, the crypto native, I guess digital native um, generation grew up, it will become part of our life. And it will become part of the, you know, again, mass adoption will come. It's just a matter of time. And it's just a matter of a lot of these players coming in. Um, I do also believe that the tech has to get much better. You know, scalabilities, as, as you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, E2.0 is coming. A lot of layer two solutions are coming. Um, really bullish on that. Other layer ones, I'm also really bullish on that. You know, Nia Protocol, Solana, you know, Cosmos, Polkadot, Celos, all of these companies are trying to, to bring it to, a, to mass adoption. And, and I do think that over time, the UX UI will be much better. Um, along with traditional player coming in, and that will truly lead us to much more mass adoption in the coming years. Um, and, and I think we're going to be surprised how, how fast that comes. I think anyone who probably was in the space in 2010, 11, 12 would already say they're surprised at the velocity uh, of how fast <laughs> right. it's gone and where we are now. So I would expect that that, you know, like any technology and data that would only mm-hmm. get faster and we will see that adoption much sooner than probably people believe. You touched on Libra. Um, what do you think the place is for, I guess, you know, uh, national digital currencies, Libra, all of these things are in a, mm. I guess, a decentralized world <laughs> and, uh, th- that we're trying to build. These are right. obviously highly centralized uh, currencies mm-hmm. and, and concepts. So where do right. Libra and the, you know, digital yuan, digital euro, those things, where do they fit? And are they, uh, I guess, a threat to, to what you're building and, and others are building? Right. I think two parts to that. Um, the first part is, yes, it is ironic that a lot of these projects are trying to call themselves cryptocurrencies or you know, <laughs> using blockchain application. I, I do believe that they are more like an e-wallet than, than a blockchain, decentralized applications, right? As right. you touch on. So I'm not, I guess I'm not really bullish on them, you know, overtaking or, you know, um, stealing the power from, from the actual D apps or the decentralized applications or, you know, like Bitcoin and all that. I don't, I don't think that would be the case. I don't view them as any credible threat at more, much more than PayPal or, you know, other centralized solutions. What I do believe though, which is the second part is that they will actually hope to bring more adoption to blockchain because obviously even though they are centralized it will rely on some of this you know um infrastructures of blockchain it will get people more familiar with it it will bring more credibilities with it um, and that in itself will provide almost like an on-ramp right from for, for normal people to set up oh i understand blockchain now i now understand how to hold my keys i understand how to hold this wallet how to send money um and now i can now hold bitcoin now i can hold ethereum by myself and that's a really important things to happen. Right. Even their very basic level understanding of how to send and receive or use a wallet, all of those things, I think obviously would be huge for that future mass adoption we talked about. Um, Pivoting, I guess, off of like the Libra and national currencies, we've seen this humongous rise in stable coins. I mean, billions Mm -hmm. and billions and billions, almost, almost parabolic in the amount of them being printed and used. Um, I was thinking about this recently and Ari Paul uh, on Twitter had had written a a bit of a thread about it, that basically this huge rise in stable coins has eliminated the um, 
the currency use case of, of Bitcoin and, and other crypto, cryptocurrencies. Basically, calling mm-hmm. Bitcoin money is sort of a misnomer now because you can use a stable coin. It's faster. It's not volatile. You know, you don't buy a cup of coffee for a dollar. And by the time it's transacted, you paid a dollar 30 for it because uh, prices right. changed by 30 points. So do you think that stable coins are the future of, of actual money and transacting in cryptocurrency? Right. No, for sure. I, I don't disagree with that. And I don't think that most people in cryptos believe that Bitcoin is supposed to be money, right? I think, I think in the past few years, a lot of people start to realize, and of course, the narrative has always been Bitcoin is a stock value, right? Similar ways to how Ethereum was trying to be a stock value now um, by you know, introducing all this DeFi concept, right? Um, and, and, and that's right, we saw, right? I think the word cryptocurrencies does more confusion than it helps, right? Um, because it's volatile, um, right now at, the, at this moment, um, I do think that a lot of these crypto asset will become more of a store value. So digital gold, right? Um, as opposed to digital money. Um, and yes, stable coin will play a major role as a money, as a medium of exchange, as a money transfer around the world. Um, and it's good. I mean, people can, you know, change you know, money around the world in a really efficient manner. Um, it's already happening. Um, and I do think this adoption will grow. And in, in any case, it will also help Bitcoin and other crypto assets that we're trying to be that are trying to be, um, you know, um, digital store values um, in the end. So I don't think they are competing. Uh, it's a really different use case, right? It is. It's just that, you know, there have been a lot of companies, you know, you always, we always heard about backed and you'd be able to buy Starbucks coffee with Bitcoin. But in reality, anyone who's passionate about Bitcoin doesn't want to spend it or buy a cup of coffee, I think, you know, because you always have that fear that the price is going to be double by you get home. So it is interesting to see the rise of of stable coins. So uh, what are your thoughts in general on the global economy right now um, with regard, obviously, to COVID and, and the, the supply chains breaking down and, and all of the things that are happening. And then I guess where cryptos uh, falls in context with right. all those things that are happening. Um, yeah, and that's a really tough question. I think it's really, really unfortunate, of course, where we are now um, due to COVID, due to all these riots and all this, right? I mean, um, you know, I'm not going to comment on that, but I think um, with, with regard to COVID and of course, um, you know, Fed printing a lot of monies right now, right? Um, it will, it's not going to end well, right? I mean, I'm really, I'm quite bearish in terms of the, the economies right now. Um, I'm and, and by that, I mean, of course, then I'm bullish on cryptocurrencies because obviously it's always a hedge against the world, right? I do think Bitcoin is um, a protection against that inflation. And I do think we're going to see inflation in the coming years, not in the short term, but it's going to come in the long term, right? And, and now, I mean, if you look at, I, I guess my view is this, right? In 2008, when we have the financial crisis, right? The, where did the money go, right? People print a lot of money. And the money goes to the rich people, right? It helped to bail out the bank. It helped to bail out the big institutions. Of course, corporate socialism. Right? Exactly. And, and, and I think, um, you know, in the, over the past 12 years, I guess, people argue that there's no inflation. But that's not the case because inflation actually happened, but it happened in the rich asset, meaning real estate, meaning stock. You have equities reaching all-time high. You have the bond and all of this, right? Because why? Because the money goes to the rich people. Right, um, and that's why you see um, you know inflation in the rich asset instead of general commodities or price level that people experience. Um, but you know, in in the case of now, two thousand twenty, it's really a different story, right? Because now it hit hard across all different sectors, the rich and the poor, um, and it, of course, in particular, the poor people, right? 
And now with this money printing going to more general people and populations, you know, we're going to start seeing much more inflation um, across the board, you know, not just rich asset anymore, but commodities and all this um, other asset class. Um, and, and I do think that people will start to realize and start to question, I guess, money. <laughs> people will start right. to question what is the I value of I think we're seeing that already. I, yeah. Yeah. I think we're seeing that already. I think actually like your average person now is actually had their eyes open to some degree to this right. and they're like, what is happening? Like, this doesn't make right. sense. You know, it really right. doesn't. And then you also see the stock market going parabolic while we, we mm. know that the, con- the economy is contracting and jobs are down. So it's like you have this glaring siren that's drawing attention to, to this problem. But the question is, how does, I guess, a poor person, especially not in the United States where they might send you a mm-hmm. stimulus check or, uh, you know, how do you navigate this? Is the answer really I go all in on crypto and I start transacting in Bitcoin like people do in Venezuela or Lebanon or these other places that have seen hyperinflation? Or is there some more balanced approach? I mean, is it time for people really to go all in if, if they're desperate? Right. Um, I'm, well, to begin, I don't think I'm an extremist in the sense that, right. of course, I don't believe that anyone should you know, put anything in all in one basket. Right. right? Uh, people should always diversify. And that lead to this, of course. I mean, if you look at the money, you look at you know cryptocurrencies. It's a way to diversify your asset. It's a way to you know, I think this is the quote from Chamat, right? Um, the ex, um, you know, one percent um, everybody uh, should have, right? right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly, right? I mean, you think of it as a hedge against the world. You think of it as an insurance, right? If the ninety-nine percent fail, then at least this one percent may save you, right? If it doesn't work out for this one percent, it's fine because your ninety-nine percent is still there, right? So it's a hedge. It's just like you're buying insurance, right? If you don't um, experience an accident, it's fine. You lose that money. But if you did, yeah, you know, this will save you, right? Um, so I, I, I generally view it as, as that as well. And now it will depend on your risk appetite, right? If you're a younger generation, you don't have, you know, um, obviously you're much more, I guess, risky than, than uh, you know, right. a, a more um, older generations. So you may want to put more percent into that. I mean, if you're older generation, fine. You're comfortable with what you're holding. You may want to diversify into this. I mean, it's, I think it, it depends on people's um, belief and, and what they want, how much they want to diversify. But the most important thing is at least they do their own research, right? They understand. Always. <laughs> they understand what, what give these values and what give the money values, what give the goal values, right? A lot of these people don't really question. And I think I hope people start to question more of that. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. And that's absolutely my approach to investing in general. And when I would talk to people, I guess what I was getting at more is if you live in one of these places where hyperinflation actually becomes right. a problem and isn't theoretical, I get, you know, I guess that's the point where you have to actually right. question what if you have other assets you can even uh, invest in. Because sure. you're why, talking, guess- yeah, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. No, um, no, I was gonna say that's why I guess you see you see a lot more country like Iran, Iran, right? We, most recently, where you know people start to fall into Bitcoin, the price jump up like almost two, three x than yeah. other exchanges. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean that really demonstrates the use case of Bitcoin, right? It's essentially a self sovereign um, store values. Nobody can confiscate you, right? And and it's actually belong to you, right? Um, and I think that's fundamentally is truly revolutionary. And what actually draw me to Bitcoin um, to begin with, right? It's the first time in, in human history that you are able to hold your own values, right? And that's really powerful, right? Um, think of it like if you're in those type of countries where, um, you know, your, your, your money, your piece of paper um, doesn't worth anything. You cannot buy USD. You cannot buy any other currencies because of the government sanction. You cannot buy gold. You cannot buy anything else, right? What are you going to do? 
you actually die, right? You actually cannot escape that. But with Bitcoin, you just remember the password. With cryptocurrencies in general, you can remember the password. You can walk across the border without anything else, and you can start a new life, right? And that is truly game changing for me, and that's truly revolutionary for me. Um, you know, we may not see that right now. Of course, in Thailand, in you know, U.S. and all Europe's and all we call, I guess, developed countries. But right. you never know, right? You never know. I think you know, you you see countries like Venezuela, which used to be a really rich country in you know, <laughs> a couple of decades back, and now you know, you see what you're seeing what's happening now. So I don't think there's such thing as 100% safe, um, and that's why having this as another alternative that is truly self-sovereign truly censorship resistant that is the number one properties of you know this whole blockchain applications it's the only true hard asset and and, and <laughs> hard money i guess in that in that regard that can't be confiscated but that with that comes a tremendous amount of responsibility that i think your average person is not willing to uh to assume like to, to become right. your own bank and worry about your own security and, and prevent the hackings and not being short and all those things are obviously huge barriers to mainstream adoption. So to a degree, people have to trust someone like you ban, you know, if they're going to buy your token or something, maybe people just want, they don't want the responsibility mm -hmm. of holding their private keys. How do you address that? I mean, you make it, obviously much easier for people to invest in these things and, and and not have all of the responsibility and weight on their shoulders. Is that right? Yep. Yep. That's for sure. And I think, like I said, a lot of more, I guess, ironically, more trusted institutions going to come in, um, into play, but that's still fine. I think it's also good. Like, I think the properties of censorship resistant doesn't apply to, you know, the majority of the people right now. Right. Um, and and that's fine. I mean, again, I'm not a I'm not an extremist to be, you know to, um, to to be unrealistic, right? I do believe this to play an important roles, um, and it will be good for people that are not familiar with this um, to start to you know, bring more adoption into it. And and I think generally we're gonna we're gonna start to move away from that, right? Uh, to totally separate question. How did you connect with Binance and end up being listed there? It's funny. It's like one of the mythical things in this space is how does someone end up on Binance? How does it actually happen? <laughs> Could you talk about the process of connecting with them and getting listed and becoming, I guess, a partner with them? Right. Um, this is on a high level, I guess, you know, obviously it's quite confidential, um, you know, just like, and not just by that, but I think to every other investors. Yeah, but you can tell um, me it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think in general, like I said, I, I started off at, in this industry as an investor. Um, so, you know, I, I, I did get a lot of, uh, I guess, connection and got connected into a lot of the VC fund, a lot of the people in the industry already. Right. Um, and, and of course I attended a lot of most of the conferences, um, talking to people, talking to industry insider, you know, the founders, the builders, um, everyone in this industry. And that's sort of how I guess I got to, I know the team, um, you know, know other people, not just VC, but exchanges, wallet and all this, um, ecosystem players. And I can say that Binance is one of the more professional players in this industry. Um, you know, and that's why we really like them and that's why we want to work with them. Makes sense. Um, has COVID and the shutdowns and all these things affected your internal operations? Has it slowed your progress? Has it, has it, has it really had any effect on, on your business? Mm. 
Right. Actually, it's the opposite. I think we become much more efficient. <laughs> a lot of that's so <laughs> and, funny yeah. because that seems to be the case. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We we start working from home um, three months ago, actually. Um, and I mean, we are now back in the office, but we were working from home for two months. Um, but you know, we were obviously, you know, we we always define our up based on output, right? Um, so it doesn't really impact a lot of these efficiencies or or productivities of the of the of our companies. Um, yeah, so I think it's, it has been fine, um, but in, in any case, I think a lot more people um, start to realize that you know it it is more efficient to sort of work from home. Doesn't have to you know go through this transportation and all this you know hectic um, things that are going on, and that's why we are we are quite good. we're quite okay. And luckily, a lot of our partners are you know overseas. A lot of most of our partners are crypto uh, you know companies that are not related to financial you know, traditional players, and, and that's why they're not affect too much by by COVID. Can you talk about who your uh, your biggest partners are? Is that something that you can share, or is it private information? <laughs> um, unfortunately, a lot of these are private. Um, you know, I, I think we are we are working quite hard on you know in terms of integrations with a lot of these big big um, you know partnerships um, that are coming up. Um, and, and unfortunately, you know, we I guess we are moving away from the model where you know we we try to announce something first before we build um, to the model where we build before we announce, right? And then announcements of an announcement of an announcement. Yeah. Come on, we all know about that. This space, no naming names, but that's right. Um, I think you know we 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 saw that in 2017, and that's why when we started in 2018 and you know 19, and we always um, affirmed believer that we should build first over marketing, um, and that will come eventually. So again, we are here for the long term. We are here for many years, uh, so we're not in a rush to, to sort of you know to do all this uh, you know I guess borderline sketchy right. gray line areas. Yeah. What was it like uh, building a blockchain based company through the crypto winter? Oh yeah, um, two things. I think number one is actually good because we can concentrate. Right, we can concentrate on you know actually building meaningful product. We can actually concentrate on listening to the partners, listening to investors, feedback from users, um, and and actually ship a meaningful, useful product to the to the end users. Right. Um, so that's number one. I think it's, it's actually really helpful. It, it sort of you know break down all the noises <laughs> from others. Right. And of course, like I said um, because of this winter. A lot of the scam projects are gone. Of course, yeah. you still have some, um, but most of them are gone, and that's good because you filter all the noises out, right? Um, and then at the same time, yes, number two is obviously you have to be aware. You need to be, you need to have a good runway and manage your startup as a startup and not as a rich blockchain companies. And that's what we have been always doing, right? We always prudent about our runway. We are always prudent about hiring, about spending money, um, and that's a really unique. Um, you know, properties of us. Yeah, not something that uh, is shared by some of your contemporaries from the uh, earlier earlier <laughs> ages of, of this. And certainly, it's funny you say that a lot of these companies have were weeded out by the uh, by the uh, crypto winter, but I think a lot of them still have tokens that are probably trading on on major exchanges <laughs> and bag holders that are still yeah, trying right. to find a, find a seller. Or there's actually buyers. It's something yep. really unique to this. Well, I guess it's not so unique since we have zombie companies uh, like Hertz pumping 800% on the uh, stock exchange, but yeah. uh, it, it really is something I think it's a, it's a pretty, pretty big problem probably in this space because, because of the tokenization, people are actually trading companies that probably are never going to have a product. Do you think that? I mean, that's right. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, like as you can, I mean, it's not just in crypto anymore, right? It applies to penny stock and other stock around the yeah, world. Yeah, it's well. crazy. It's, it's unfortunate, but that's why we have this podcast. That's why we have this you know, educational material that hopefully more people are doing. And I really admire what you guys are doing, what other people are doing. I appreciate that. Um, because, because it's really helped the industry to make it better. Um, so what can we look forward to in the, in the future from, from you and from band? What are the next big uh, landmarks that we'll see from you? Big, big, big moments and events. I know you don't like right. to make huge announcements, but what are, the, what, are the, what are the things that are coming in the future that, that everyone knows about? Right, right. So uh, again, I think number one thing is, of course, we are, um, like, like you said, we don't like to hype around any particular date or event because I think obviously right. this is a really long, continuous journey, right? Um, there's no such thing as the ending. Um, but for me, number one important thing that we are always focused on is adoption, right? And actually creating meaningful real-world usages. Um, so I'm really excited uh, in the next few years that we're going to be able to drive um, you know, meaningful, meaningful adoptions um, for, for our Oracle solutions. Um, we are really excited to, in the next few years to secure, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in, in DeFi as well as smart contract across different layer one solutions. Um, it's going to happen gradually. It's going to happen over time. It's not going to be, you know, one night and, oh, we went from zero to one billion, right? It's going right. to take time. Um, but personally, I'm really, I'm really in, interested and excited about this journey um, that we are taking. I think we are in a press, in a place where, we can say we start to see much more product market fit um, with our partners. Um, so now it's all about scaling. It's about you know actually scaling our team, integrating our solutions, and make sure we can deliver the best value to this whole industry. And what's the best place for people to follow both you and Band Protocol? Keep up with what you're doing. If they want to become an Oracle, how do they uh, get in touch with <laughs> you? Uh, what's the best way for people to interact with you uh, after this podcast? Sure. Um, I think our website, bandprotocol.com, obviously the best place to you know study the first material. Um, in there, you can obviously find a link to somewhere else. Um, you know, our Twitters, our Mediums, um, our Telegrams, and our Discord are official channels. So we always have our official team members um, there. Our Mediums are always up to date. So you can get all the information there. Uh, and like I said, I'm always there on Telegram. You know, always happy to answer any questions and I'm looking forward to growing these communities, looking forward to growing meaningful adoptions in the next few years with all of you. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for the time. I definitely learned a lot and I'm looking forward <laughs> to seeing uh, what you guys have for us in, in the future. We'll have to uh, have you back on for an update a couple months uh, down the road. <laughs> for sure. I'm happy. And, and you know, my pleasure as well for having, you know, thanks a lot for having me here. Always a pleasure to share a lot of these information. Of course. Now I'll go start the rest of my day and you'll go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Have a thanks good a lot, Bye. Cheers. Let's go. Hey everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes go live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at Scott Melker to continue the conversation. See you next week.